Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Thank you so much for being here today. We are honored to have somebody who will uh, tackle a very difficult question. Is it possible to have sustainable fashion? And we have asked somebody who has a very big experience and we can say holistic experience from academia to entrepreneurship to fashion. A person that, as in her book, we can say is, is born global because she's a globetrotter. She has been in three continents and she has wonderful even academic recognition. I'm very happy today to have Neri Carra with me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Neri. It's, it's wonderful to have you here. Can you tell us about your story? Because when I was reading, you are a professor at the ESEC Management School. You are entrepreneurship specialist at the Oxford Side Business School. You have a PhD for Cambridge. You study in America, but in Miami University, you have been recognized, I mean, all over the world with fashion, especially in UK. And on the other side, you have founded your business, Neri Carra. In, uh, in fashion, and now you have Moda Métier, your consultancy. All that started in Bulgaria. Ow. It's true. It all started in Bulgaria. I was born in Bulgaria in a small town called Asenovgrad. And then at the age of 11, so during my childhood, I was born during communism in Bulgaria. When I was growing up in the 80s, the communist government had decided to carry out an assimilation process against the Bulgarians of Turkish uh, ethnicity. So we couldn't speak Turkish. If you practiced your culture in any way, you will be imprisoned. It was just forbidden. Our names were changed from Turkish name to Bulgarian names. And for example, my own name was changed just seven times. So I would go to school with uh, (laughs) one name And then a few months later, I will be given another name because it didn't sound Bulgarian enough. My grandfather was, for example, imprisoned for a while because he was listening to Turkish music. Many of our neighbors' relatives were sent to camps. The camps were set out in a town called Belene. So what you see today, what you hear in the news, unfortunately, I know it's a controversial topic, but what you hear about the Uyghur Muslims in China, we lived a version of it in Bulgaria during uh, the communist regime. Just before the communism collapsed in 1989, the Bulgarian government, communist government, did a deal with the Turkish government where they said, I'm going to send all the Bulgarians of Turkish ethnicity to Turkey. And the Bulgarian government said, okay, we will set up immigrant camps. They can come. What that meant is that you can only take, you know, whatever belongings you had. Ours were only two suitcases. So in June of 1989, we found ourselves suddenly in the border between Bulgaria and Turkey, along with 360,000 Bulgarians of Turkish ethnicity. And uh, we were set out to live in immigrant camps 
it was very challenging time because uh, not because of the poverty, not because you suddenly, you know, you are taken out of the place you knew as a country. And I remember this unbelievable confusion, fear, panic all around me. And even yesterday I was talking to my mom and I, I said to her, education is very important for me, mom. I don't think I can ever let it go because uh, it's part of my identity. As an 11 year old, when I stood at, at the border, I made a decision to myself. I remember this very clearly like it was yesterday. I said, if I want to get out of this situation, I really need to get a good education. This is basically for me, the foundation of my entire life. That is a defining moment. Thank you for sharing this personal story. I think that is where and why you have been so successful in life. You know, your defining moment, seeing a small girl of 11 years old at the border with her suitcase, having lost all his childhood and going to another country, I think is where you achieve so much. And now it stands you where you are. You are a professor and an expert with top level universities and an entrepreneur. So how, how you did it? How I did it is because I had this determination to get a good education, to be successful. It didn't come from an egotistical place. It wasn't because I said to myself, I have to be successful because I want people to know who I am. It wasn't that. It was more that I wanted a better life for myself and my family. When you end up in a place where you have absolutely nothing, no money, you want that for your own, at least that's what I wanted for my own life. And uh, I focused on, on education. At the age of 18, I got a scholarship to go and study at University of Miami in the States. During that time, I mean, back in Turkey, my parents, uh, my dad was an illegal cab driver. He had many different jobs. Also, I should mention at the age of 16, I had a part-time job when I was in high school taking leather products producers from Turkey to Italy and uh, visiting their suppliers. My job was a translator, so I was taking them to Italy and doing the translations for them. Whenever the Italian suppliers will come to Turkey, I was translating as well. Actually, you can say my the business side of the story started with me being a translator to Italian suppliers and their Turkish leather producers. So that is actually the story. When people ask me today, they make the assumption that perhaps it was my grandfather who left me the company or it was my father who had a very big factory and put my name on a bag. That's not true. You started from scratch. Let us say, not even bootstrapping, from zero, zero, zero. Absolutely. And that's why I want to tell my story, because it is possible to do it. It takes many years. It's not easy. It's uh, a lot of the ups and downs and many zigzags. But, you know, if you keep at it, it's possible to have a business that is successful and you can create a business of your dreams if you want to get into fashion, if you want to start a fashion business. Part of the reason why I also do my consultancy is to help the designers who want to, or individuals who want to start a fashion business and take them on a journey of how to do that. To get back to the story, at the age of uh, 16, when I was translating, 
my parents were also selling these uh, t-shirts to uh, Russia because the communism had ended in Russia and many Russian people were coming to Turkey buying you know whatever they could and selling back in the street markets in Russia in the early 90s right after communism ended there were no stores everything was being sold on street markets there wasn't Versace Giorgio Armani nothing like that of course today you see a very different Russia everything is uh, there is a framework everything is is built but not in the early 90s. And why Russia? Because we speak Russian, because uh, having grown up in Bulgaria, you know, it's mandatory. You start learning Russian the second you open your eyes. <laughs> it's a joke, but you start learning Russian at age eight, eight. So it's a elementary school. They gave you advantage now. It is another <laughs> another ammunition in your in your arsenal. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I have to say one thing that uh, has given me a very good foundation is the Bulgarian education, because uh, from the age of eight you start learning German, Russian. Or, you know, I wanted to learn English myself. It is a very good foundation. You're really born global. I mean, even there, moving and, and from Miami to the world, how the fashion came? Yes, I was interested in fashion from a very, very early age. Once again, back from my childhood, because in communism, you don't have fashion. And for me, I found this old uh, German. I mean, because it was communism, you don't really get access to Vogue or blah, 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 all these like very good fashion magazines. But there was a German uh, Burda magazine. So I was fascinated by fashion even at that age. And when I went to Miami, of course, you see US. US was an eye opener for me it was uh, because I really realized, you know, it's a place where Dory also talks about it, like you can have control over your life. If you want to achieve anything, do anything, it's possible. That's the feeling U.S. gives you. At least at the time, this is what I got. I remember listening to Oprah every day because uh, <laughs> I was like, I can do it. She was very motivational. And looking around me and also recognizing that even these huge corporations started with as a small business at some point. And uh, I went back after I graduated from Miami. I wanted to go back because I was there all by myself. I did have a job offer from Morgan Stanley. Uh, there was, I did like internship there, but I just wanted to be back. And my parents at the time, they were selling some leather wallets, t-shirts, but not our brand. They were selling this to Russia, just as uh, making commission out of whatever they were selling. So I basically said to them, look, uh, during my business class, I put together a business plan for a fashion business. You know, we can buy the leather from Italy. We, I know the suppliers and uh, they have these like leather skins that they sometimes throw or They can sell them for very cheap. We can approach them and we can create our first collection. And at the time, mobile phones were just coming out like the Nokias. And how about we create small, we don't have to make very big things, but wallets, mobile phone cases, the margins can be better in terms of 
making it profitable. And we approached craftsmen in Turkey who, who are known to be very good at what they do. And this was the idea. And the name actually, Neri Kara, I didn't uh, say to them, let's put my name on it, but it was my cousin in Bulgaria. When we were sitting around the kitchen table and discussing this, she said, well, it has to be your name because uh, you are the one giving the idea. Uh, you are the one pushing this. So you put your name on it and it will also make you more, how can I say it? It will make you more determined and uh, responsible because once you put your name on something, you really have to make it the top quality. Mm -hmm. Then there is no backing away and it's commitment. It's a great story. An entrepreneur from the scratch. Since you are a professor in entrepreneurship, you really link yourself with the literature and the case studies. <laughs> in fact, speaking of case studies, so about a few years later, I applied to do my PhD at the University of Cambridge. Uh, because even though we started the business and it was very full on, we were traveling to Italy, sourcing our material, coming back to Turkey, doing, we had a, a, an atelier. Uh, today we have a factory. At the time it was a small atelier. Uh, going to Russia, selling, talking to distributors. And we, today one of my biggest distributors actually reminded me when I approached her, I said, can you just, Take these wallets, like 10 wallets, see how it will go in your stores. You don't have to pay us anything, but when it sells, you just come back. We really had to convince people to buy our product. And believe me, it wasn't open arms from day one. <laughs> people didn't want to. They said, no one knows your brand. It's very good quality, I understand, but people don't really care about quality. They want uh, Gucci, they want Versace they need a brand name. And today, for example, I know for a fact, uh, many women will have Hermes bags or Dior bags, but they will definitely have an Ericara wallet. They tell me it lasts 10 years, so, <laughs> and even more. Wow, that is brand attachment and brand love you have done. Yes, a really successful business. Thank you. And in my PhD, I used my company as a case study. So my PhD focuses on entrepreneurship, on international entrepreneurship. Because when I went to Cambridge, I actually initially was going to do foreign direct investment from Turkey to Russia. So it was much more macro level. It was economics. I even had to do a diploma in econometric analysis at LSE because I needed it for the PhD. It was a requirement. But as I started to do my research, my business is still going on in the background when I'm completing my PhD. And I'm actually thinking to myself, there is a new trend of literature that talks about global entrepreneurship, that talks about companies that become global from day one. And uh, only very few articles written about it at that time. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is my company. It's uh, actually, we are global from day one. We have multiple distributors in multiple countries, multiple suppliers in multiple countries and so on. So this is a born global business. And then I use my company as a case study to study international entrepreneurship and also ethnic entrepreneurship, because 
many of the associates we have come from the same similar background to us. They also have been under communism. When the communism ended, they wanted to start their own business. And this shared historic understanding helped us to create the business that we have today. Because it's almost like you become a family with them. When you have gone through something very similar, you tend to want similar things and you tend to support each other in achieving it. Another paper, which I haven't written, but I've talked about writing it for a long time, is create your own family. How you can use the familiness to your own advantage, even if you don't come from the same familial background, how you can create your own family in order to make your business successful. That is very interesting. We can say for the listener that Born Global is also a book uh, from you, I think in 2016. Then the analysis, I think there is also another one is about uh, global fashion. Am I correct? The second one is about family business. Family business, yes. Family business. The third one that I am Uh, that is going to be published in September is about fashion entrepreneurship. Yes. You see, so you have even a a prolific writer. So I think that what you say is really important, you know, to have the sense of family, especially through the hardship, has given you an edge and an advantage also to have workers and create a strong nucleus where to build your business. And where is your business today? And then we can move to the sustainability because also that is where... Also, you are the big next move, but we can start with, what is your business today? My business today, we have a factory in Istanbul. We have uh, about 250 craftsmen only that we employ. Majority of people in my company that we employ are women, and they are also from an immigrant background like me, like us. It started like that because uh, I want to provide opportunities, and of course, when I talk about this shared understanding, shared history. It makes it somehow easier to do business, to work together. Uh, You get to understand each other better. We have a distribution network that encompasses uh, Central Asia, former Soviet republics like Ukraine and Kazakhstan and so on. And we also are a majority of our businesses in Russia. We also started our own e-business. We sell online. So the last, uh, I would say, five, seven years, we are focusing on growing the business online, growing our own social media. Because in the early days when we started, this was not important. It didn't exist. But as we all know, the landscape has changed drastically. So we are slowly and surely moving towards becoming a B2C business, which is like selling directly to our own uh, clients. We produce at the moment for renowned, very, very high-end Italian luxury uh, leather goods as well, whose names uh, I'm not allowed to reveal because of my contract with them. But uh, be assured that they are extremely well-known names and uh, we produced, we have been producing for them for the last five years. Wow. I mean, and all this started with a girl looking from the border at Turkey. So, you know, from Bulgaria. That is a wonderful achievement in the trends because I think you are a woman of the many challenges. So, you know, teaching entrepreneurial and a business is not enough. Now you're also starting a consultancy and work and that is how we have even engaged because 
one of the your latest uh, interests it is about you know sustainability in in the fashion industry since you are a professor you will, you can even also tell us about uh, about that on uh, of, on fashion how we can do because we know that sustainability and especially the fashion industries is one of the biggest polluter. If you go to the various report, the UN or biggest NGO, they say, you know, it's the second highest polluter, the microplastics, there is overproduction, is contributing to some say two, some say up to 8% of the greenhouse gas, the carbon footprint of the industry is good. Some even in the literature, they say sustainable fashion is an oxymoron. How do you define it? And because we want to know, how you do it, since you are not only an academic, but a practitioner, you are doing it. It's an excellent uh, point because, uh, as you know, I've recently written an article, uh, what sustainability really means in fashion, because it is indeed true. Like you, in the last few years, we have seen this absolute, almost a boom when it comes to sustainability. And it's very good that we started to have this conversation around what sustainability means companies and consumers are becoming much more aware of the effects pollution fashion industry on its own is uh, the greatest polluter one of the greatest polluters so we see many of them like i was writing in my article at the best you see it as part of their business strategy but at the worst you see it as part of their pr marketing where absolutely everything is sustainable and some people want to use that word sustainability in order to sell more clothes more bags more more t-shirts more shoes for me it's about honesty because are you really serious about sustainability what is your intention very recently actually i was uh, coaching a, a girl who wants to start a small business in making kaftans and uh, she basically said to me I want it to be about sustainability because it's very trendy I wanted to mention sustainability because it's very trendy I asked her what is your intention for creating this sustainable brand for me before you start anything you need to be very clear and honest with yourself what is your intention behind wanting to start a sustainable fashion brand And uh, if the intention is not pure, if you do it because you want to sell more bags or more t-shirts, at some point, your consumers are going to catch on. So the first point, uh, if you are asking me for advice, will be to be very honest about the intention that you have. That is a very good point. In fact, we have seen a proliferation, no? you know, the, the trend everybody says is green, but what is really sustainable? Because on one hand, we understand that even the younger generation are pushing towards it. So, you know, the consumers marketing, uh, they are saying that sustainability is the big trend, actually is a mega trend, you know, in the yes. literature. But on the other side also, the, especially the younger generation, I was reading a study in UK, the average timing for... Um, the usage of clothes has decreased by, let us say, almost 40%. And one of five clothes, they are not even worn. So, you know, there is overproduction and problems. So really, it creates a lot of tension. So which are the strategies? Because, you know, you have the push, we want to be sustainable. But on the other side, how we avoid what you just said, not being honest, just to put a, a green label on something that 
you know, is not really green. It's true. Companies creating this PVC leather and then saying, I'm using sustainable material. But if you look at it, it's actually just falls around the edges immediately, like the strategy falls because it's a, takes a lot more energy, water to create PVC. It's much more harmful to the environment. But on the other hand, they are claiming to be uh, sustainable and they are claiming to be, you know, useful for the environment or benefiting the environment. So these are the, the challenges. And that's why I talk about honesty, about intention, not just because I have a leather products label, but for example, what not many people are talking about, I, and I know leather is a very controversial industry at the moment, but where we buy our leather in Italy, you have the very big uh, trade fairs. It's called Linea Pelle. And the Italian government, this is like we are talking 10 years ago, it's not new, set out these requirements that the suppliers need to have, the suppliers of leather can only exhibit at Linea Pelle if the leather is a byproduct of the food industry. Meaning you are helping the environment because the, uh, if that leather will be thrown away, it's already, um, for, I mean, the animal is slaughtered for the food industry already. So if you don't use that leather, if you don't recycle it and create leather from it, it's more harmful to the environment. It stays many, many years. It creates bacteria, it creates viruses. So the suppliers in Italy are already forced to implement these changes by the government. Not many people talk about that. For me, however, I would say one of the ways is about quality because instead of creating something, and this is where the fashion cycle comes into place because, and the fashion designers have already started to challenge and ask these questions where you have basically fashion shows and you are needed to create a new product, new style every three months, every two months. It's, it's unsustainable. And I think it's, I don't want to say thanks to COVID, but because of COVID, fashion designers and the fashion industry itself started to ask this question to itself. Do we need this many seasons? And Giorgio Armani, for example, is one of the leaders who already was before COVID was refusing to do as many fashion shows. So if you, you have to produce less, caring as well is having this issue. You know, they are one of the pioneers when it comes to sustainability, but they say, actually, we are producing a lot as a luxury house. How can we reduce the production? Because even if you use sustainable leather, even if you use sustainable material, if you are overproducing, you are still harming the environment. These are the questions to ask. I think you did a wonderful point there because it is not just about one single point is the holistic system. The system where if you don't reduce overproduction and you change the way, you know, interact with clothes, you can make sustainable cotton, sustainable leather. Maybe also you have leather, which is good, no, without, uh, with uh, natural glue and everything. And I'm talking more about uh, garments and clothes. You, you're still producing a lot of clothes, t-shirts. You are putting microplastics. So, you know, we really have to have a, an holistic approach. I, I forgot to mention is about the way you produce. If you are producing something like, I don't want to name names, but if you are producing something and uh, 
you know, you will get rid of it a year later or six months later. That to me is not sustainable. It's this for me producing a high quality product that you are going to use for 10 years, 15 years. This is sustainability. So the raw material, the quality of the raw material and the way the product has been produced is incredibly important. The way you treat your employees, the salaries that you pay, the well-being of your employees, this is all part of sustainability. Not many people talk about that, but as uh, someone who employs uh, 250 craftsmen only, with all the people, it goes up to 700. The way you treat your employees is incredibly important because they are putting with their hands and their eyes, their whole being, they are producing a product. They are creating a product that will go to the end consumers and uh, it will be part of their life. I really believe how you create something, the love that you put into it makes a difference in the end product. If you don't treat that person well, and if you don't look after their well-being with good salaries, with good employment condition, I think it reflects on the end product. I really am a big believer of that. It's really something that gives you the difference of your brand, the caring of the people, and the, because that is the social part. Absolutely. And this is perhaps of the because of the communist in me, <laughs> because of having grown up in communism, like the, the well-being of people. In fact, that is true. You know, sometimes they teach us uh, human resources, just resources, you know, especially in the models for production. Okay, you put some inputs in the inputs, there is also the labor, but, you know, that is very, very important. The human factor is, is critical. Yes, and I think it's forgotten. I don't think, uh, you know, people don't really emphasize as much when it comes to sustainability. We always talk about the raw material, the kind of leather, the kind of cotton you use. But even now with cotton, you know, we know about the controversy now with the cotton. Who is creating that? How is that cotton made? Who is the person behind it? What is the really the human factor, the well-being of your employees, how something is made? To me, it's a very big part of sustainability. Uh, you can use raw material that is sustainable, but where do you get your products produced? Of course, now young designers and uh, early business owners can say, but I have to think about my profitability. And that's another point. So I see this, to me, it's a challenging aspect where people say, I either have to be ethical and socially responsible or make money. To me, this is not correct because you can in fact become more successful in the long run, underline this, in the long run. I think today, especially from my students and companies I consult, everyone wants to be successful overnight. And this is not possible. It's not possible. You can have a successful business, but it takes several years. It takes many years. And uh, this is, if you want to have a sustainable, sustainably successful business, you need to make the investment, which is combining sustainability, ethical, and profit. And that is not perhaps going to give you a profitability in the very first year or second year, but longer term, you will be sustainably successful. In the sense that when there is a crisis, economic recession, or COVID, you 
we'll be able to withstand the earthquakes that come in much better. The foundation of the business, that's why it has to be strong. So the houses that withstand the earthquakes are the ones that have very strong foundation. Just like that, you have to build a very strong foundation for your business. What you said is really important because the long run and also taking care of the of the of the workers. Well, speaking of the long run, I think I forgot to mention this, so I should say it here: is uh, the profit margins. I don't put very big profit margins. My product is extremely high quality, the kind that uh, very high-end luxury brands uh, appreciate as well. The craftsmanship, the quality is excellent. On the other hand. My prices are very accessible. Everyone has said to me from the beginning, this is impossible. You can't have outstanding quality. And in a way, if you look at the business literature, this also teaches it to us in terms of like following differentiation strategy or cost advantage. It's almost like you can't be outstanding quality and uh, charge uh, basically accessible prices. But if you think about it for the long term, you can do it. If you want to create like immediate profits right away and say, I'm going to have very high profit margins. I just don't think for me, it was just not ethical from the very beginning. I just, even when we were starting out, I just couldn't see how I should put times nine profit margins or times six times seven. I just wasn't ethical to me. So this is how the business started from the very beginning. And this, to me, also part of sustainability. That is true, because I also read this. The Hermes bag or Gucci bag in, in 10 years has double, triple, quadruplied the, the pricing. So what you're doing, you're really doing giving sustainable products, affordable products, but also that they are democratic in a way. Yeah. Absolutely. I see, you know, these uh, speaking of sustainability now, we, you probably heard Caring Investing in Vestier Collective, the second-hand uh, resale website. I see my own handbags selling there as well. And uh, these are like 10 years old, seven years old bags, and they are reselling them. And that's very good to see because I'm like, it's still in very good quality and uh, she used the bag for seven years. And it's still in very good condition, doesn't lose its value. Actually, you preempted my question because that is the one of the solutions heralded. I was listening to some and reading some uh, reports of uh, McKinsey about end of ownership models. So a disruptive business model for the fashion industry. So from the traditional one, I buy my clothes, I hang it in the wardrobe. Now this enabling second hand. Uh, or even go to the end of ownership with services where you can uh, hire for maybe a couple of months your clothes. What is your take on that? Is it going to transform the business model in the industry? I don't think it will transform, but it's definitely having a very big impact. I'm very happy to see that uh, very luxury conglomerates being aware of that and investing in the resale websites because I think it's definitely making people much more aware of longevity of a product, of uh, the fact that you don't have to change something every season. This girl I was speaking to, she said to me, I don't really use 80% of my wardrobe. It just sits there. So it's making us uh, really much more aware of uh, what we need, actually. 
you know this uh, Marie Kondo, she's uh, Japanese and she talks about her whole philosophy is you keep only what brings you joy. And I'm a big believer in that. I, I followed her for many years and I've implemented her, what she's teaching to my own life. And it really makes you ask the question, what really brings you joy? What do you really need in your life? And this has an impact on fashion. And I think it's going to keep having an impact. And that's why you see the resale websites uh, really taking off, vintage clothing becoming important. I think also for you, we can say that you are not aiming at just producing for the sake of producing, but you are producing for the sake of bringing joy. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Because that is where I think your, your business model is different. You are trying to... To get high quality, small production, affordable price, which is in line. Which are the advices you, you want to give to somebody that wants to start a sustainable and go in the sustainable fashion business? To be very, very honest, first with yourself, then with the intention of why you want to create a sustainable uh, business. And when the intention is clear, then from there, I think it's, as I said, it's the foundation of the business because then you can find the right suppliers, you can find the right people for yourself. And I really take this as the biggest advice for myself too. I always ask myself, what is my intention? And it's not just uh, for overall, anything I start, what is my intention for writing an article? What is my intention for wanting to work with this supplier? What is my intention for wanting to hire an ex-person? I ask this at every step of the way. And this will be my biggest advice to anyone who wants to start a sustainable fashion business. And keep being curious, asking questions. There's always room for improvement. We all learn as uh, we start a business, as we keep growing, it's uh, an ongoing journey. Be curious, be honest, and uh, be clear about your intention. That is a wonderful suggestion. Curious, honest, and transparent. You know, that is very, very good. And I think that is a valuable piece of advice. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we will talk in the future for the next successes. My pleasure. Thank you. It was very interesting to be here and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, eh, Neri. Thank, Thank you so you much. Neri. Thank you. <laughs> Are you better off after this wonderful episode? In the next one, we will discuss the role of women and sustainability.